Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Are we living in the future or in the past? It's episode 306 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I ask you that because this week we're going to be talking about a book that kind of lives in both worlds. Join the future, number one from Aftershock Comics. So happy to welcome writer Zach Kaplan back onto the show this week to talk about his brand new story. And you know Zach from, we've, we've had him on to talk about Eclipse, we've talked about Port of Earth, we've talked about Lost City Explorers. This is a new book from him, and it's been a while since he's had a new book. And let's face it, I mean, it seems like he only puts something out when he knows he's got something good, so we're really going to dive in to what this story is all about. And it's a big week, going to be talking about Castlevania Season 3. There's some very interesting nerd news to talk about, and also have a wonderful new sponsor to talk about this week, ID Tech Camps, something really, really awesome, especially if you have kids, you're going to want to hear a whole lot about this and an amazing deal that we have for you about something that your kids might really love doing during the summer. There's so much to review, so much to talk about. Let's dive into it. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is John Sipos from Krypton, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Grab your laptop, your tablet, pull out the bags and boards, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and sometimes it's hard to decide what the biggest title of the week is and what I want to lead this off with this week. No question about it. It's got to be Strange Adventures number one from DC Comics. Actually, Black Labels, matter of fact, remember. Tom King writing this one, of course. Mitch Garrett and Evan Doc Shanner on the art. Clayton Cowles on the letters. Now, you've seen some of the interior pages. I posted some of them at downandnerdypodcast.com. And you know that Adam Strange is basically being seen as a hero by many. He's he's fought and he's fought in a war on Ron. He's, you know, proven himself as a as a as a hero in the eyes of many. And now he's basically a celebrity because of it. And this is some one of the things that can that's what makes this such a modern age story. I mean, this has happened, you know, in previous years, this has happened before too. I mean, it's not the first time someone's been seen as a hero because of something that they've done in war. And a lot of times you could parlay that into something, you know, throughout history, we've seen that happen, but normally it's politics in modern day society. It can be celebrity. And that's kind of what's happening here. And you're, you're seeing how social media takes effect on this, but he is basically, it starts out, he's on a book tour. And this book kind of goes back and forth to what happened on Ron and what is happening in the present day. So we get to see kind of both sides of this. We get to see what's going on with the Pict, which was the force that was invading Ron and how that all went down. And you're we don't get exactly what happened in this conflict, in this war that he was a part of. We get to see the beginnings of it, but we don't actually get to see everything in this first issue so that much i will tell you but another thing is is when he's out on his you know publicity tour it's something happens that sort of shakes things up a little bit and again i'm really really trying not to spoil any of this for you but it's one of those things where Somebody doesn't react the way that a lot of others are and we also see that there's something else that happens later on in this book as well that really casts a light on who Adam Strange might really be. I know that's really tap dancing here, but that is exactly what's going on. And what's interesting about this is is that to see how, and it's very slow too, as this issue goes on, you see how this sort of wears on Adam and how he becomes a little bit more mentally fragile as the book goes on. And you'll see that's very palpable as you're reading this. And I think that that's a really, really important thing to focus on in this story. And again, while we don't know what really happened, we're getting little hints and bits and pieces. The truth lies somewhere in the middle. That's usually where it is, right? And I feel like that's exactly 
where this story is going to go. Now, when something does happen to Adam, he wants to clear his, you know, clear his reputation immediately, not just for, you know, the purposes of his, you know, thriving now celebrity and business, but because his reputation is important to him. So he reaches out for help and we get to see at the end of the book, if you're up on your DC Comics lore, that is exactly who is going to be helping him. And I think this could be really interesting way to go. I got to say, though, the way that this is portrayed, which is so grounded and yet so just nth level sci-fi, it's pretty incredible, I have to say. And really, I mean, it's really hard to praise this book because it's so incredible in, in the way that and I don't want to compare it to Mr. Miracle. I know that that's, that's what some people are doing. But Mr. Miracle, just when you read it, it felt different and it was hard to describe. This one, it feels like you're blending real-world issues with top-level science fiction is the best possible way that I can describe it. And knowing that there's more to this story than I actually thought on the surface, I actually thought... About 50% of it is what I expected it to be. And then the this other 50% is, oh, well, that's a layer I wasn't expecting. And that's one of the things you get from the team like Tom King and Mitch Garage and Evan Doc Shander. That's what you you get that kind of creativity. And that's what should draw you to their work. And that's what always draws me to their work as well. And the fact that I don't know where this is going now, that's one of the main selling points of a book for me is either okay, it's obvious where this is going and you, you're either up for that or not, or I've no idea where this is going, but I have a, or maybe I have a little idea of where this is going and I cannot wait to be surprised at what happens. Put this in your poll box now if you haven't already. If you haven't gotten your copy, go out and get it now. Strange Adventures number one from DC Comics. I realized it had been a while since we'd done a book from Boom Studios, so I wanted to correct that this week with King of Nowhere number one from Boom and W. Maxwell Prince on the writing, Tyler Jenkins on the art, Hillary Jenkins doing the colors for this one, actually, and Anne World Design on the letters. Now, this follows a man named Dennis, and Dennis is a loser, basically. He is, I mean, he's he seems like he's portrayed as an addict, as an alcoholic, Every adjective you could give for somebody who has a substance abuse problem and doesn't care, that's Dennis in a nutshell. But he ends up waking up and he has no idea where he is. And he kind of sets himself on a path to a really weird town. Now, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking if I saw the things that he saw on my way to where I was going, I'd probably turn around, but not Dennis. Dennis just keeps on walking, and he ends up in a place that is really topsy-turvy, let me tell you. And it's it's going to be hard to say this without spoiling anything, but I, I will spoil this a little bit because it's important for me to tell you what's going on going forward. He basically thinks he's tripping. He basically thinks that none of this is really happening and that he's going to wake up any minute and he's not going to know where he is, but everything will suddenly be fine. Not the case at all. Or at least we don't think it's the case. Okay, that I want to make that very clear. While it seems like this is real, that doesn't mean that it actually is yet. I'm pretty darn sure that it is, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a huge twist in later issues going, oh, by the way, yeah, it was all in his mind. Just thought I would let you know that, you know, we were kind of making you think that it wasn't, but it really was sort of thing. So I would not be shocked by that at all. But it's a very interesting cast of characters. And this is why you bring in somebody like Tyler Jenkins for these unique character designs that just make this. And you know, you want to talk about weird. This is like next level, super weird stuff. But at the same time, it has an American gods type vibe to it as well, where it just all seems normal at the same time, right? You're this normal guy or somewhat normal guy stuck in this very abnormal place, but it all seems like it's it was always there and it's supposed to be there in the first place, if that makes sense. And Dennis, who thought it was all a dream, decides that he's going to stick his nose where it doesn't really belong 
And that is really what sets the story off. And he really, I mean, in this first issue alone, he ends up digging himself pretty damn deep into some serious trouble, into some serious issues. And just when you thought it was weird enough as it is, this book's going to get weirder and weirder as as the issues go on. I just know it. And I, I am all about it. The, the sheriff of this town is a very, very intriguing character. I know that we're just scratching the surface on that guy in this first issue. So where this goes from here, uh, how Dennis's story ends up, will be very interesting, especially now, now this book does have an epilogue at the end. And I know that sometimes you might be tempted to skip something like that. Treat this like an end credit scene for a comic book movie that you've been waiting for. Read the epilogue, hugely important to where the story is going to be going from here on out. That's all I'm going to tell you. Do not skip the epilogue and do not skip King of Nowhere. Number one, Put this one in your pull box as well. It's wonderfully weird, and I can't wait to see where this thing's going to go. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. You know Castlevania Season 3 dropped. Going to give you a spoiler-filled, or at least spoiler-ish review of the entire season. And that's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Amelia Jones from Netflix's Rock and Key, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Without Vlad Tepish, what will they do? It is time for my spoiler-filled review of Season 3 of Castlevania on Netflix. So yeah, definitely going to be a bunch of spoilers from here on out if you haven't gotten a chance to finish the entire third season yet. Just a little bit of a heads up there. But I will say this right off the bat. And I said this in my early review down in nerdypodcast.com with the early episodes. This is a season that definitely makes you wait for what's coming. And believe me, it happens. It is worth the wait. That much I can tell you for sure. So if you want to listen to the first little bit of this without any spoilers, that's what I can tell you is that if you're thinking, okay, when is this when is the big thing gonna happen? And how long is it going to take? And is it going to be worth it? It will be worth it. Not much I could tell you right now. There's definitely a lot of setup and a lot of, well, this is going to pay off later on kind of feeling. And you get to the point where, honestly, even I was thinking, okay, is this is this going to pay off like it should? Because if it doesn't, then this is going to be a very disappointing season. And when it starts to pay off, it really starts to pay off. I would say probably... Around episode six or seven is when you start to get the idea of, okay, so this is what's going on and this is what's really happening. And then the last two episodes, nine and ten, are just absolute insanity from start to finish in both. So before I dive into that, I'll just tell you that this season really follows four distinctly different stories if you ask me of course you've got trevor and sypha who you know obviously went off on their own after killing dracula and now they're basically in charge or they've put themselves in charge of dealing with the night creatures that they find on in their travels it's kind of like the the traveling night creature killers sort of thing and you know they've got this interesting couple dynamic to say the least and it, was, it did bug me a little bit, though, because at first I'm like, is this supposed to be as cutesy as it, as it seems? Because that's kind of what it feels like. But but sci-fi, I think, is just that lovable. And then you just can't help yourself. And you got Trevor, who's a bit of a curmudgeon. And that dynamic, which has always worked so well, just kind of works in that regard. And, and a lot of the humor from the season that actually worked came from that dynamic and that relationship. So that's one thing that I think worked out really well in their favor. So you've got their travels and they end up in a town called Lindenfeld, who's certainly had their share of issues and has this weird priory with these priests that experienced something that, you know, some of them were catatonic. Some of them are just weird now. And then we meet St. Germain, who turns out is a bit of a magician. You get a guy named judge that runs the town. And it's just, and, and of course, you know, Trevor and Sypha end up getting caught up in the comings and goings of that town. But I'll get back to that in just a second when I start talking about these later episodes. Because we've also got you've got Alucard, who's in the castle. He's by himself now, and he's clearly lonely. Like, you find out, intensely lonely, right? And he's kind of just living in isolation. And he's got these dolls of Sypha and Trevor, and it's, it's, it's maybe not 
necessarily funny. You get to the point where you really actually feel bad for Alucard, right? You know, and he's still, you know, also guarding the Belmont hold, which he said he would do. So that was part of it, right? But at the same time, and then he comes across a couple of unexpected visitors in the form of Zumi and Taka. And you find out that their village has been invaded by this this vampire that was the you get a little bit about this vampire whose name I can't remember off the top of my head but she was a very very interesting character that we don't really get back to in this season and I'll talk about that here in a few minutes as well we don't really get back to that and that's one of my only criticisms of this season is that this vampire character that they built up in Zumi and Taka's story was so interesting and so intriguing and yet we don't really get back to that. And I I thought that that was interesting. Now, that could be part of, because of what happens in the final two episodes with Zumi and Taka, that could be, you know, certainly be a good reason for that. But that that's one character that I wish we could have gotten back to a little bit more. Then you also have Isaac's journey, which is very, very interesting because Isaac is very much still wanting to carry out Dracula's plan, right? Even as a human, he wants to carry out Dracula's plan. And you see the very interesting dynamic between he and the ship's captain there of the ship that he kind of maybe commandeers, maybe makes a deal to take back. And basically what he wants to do is he wants to find Carmilla and he wants to take her down. He wants to take her out. And he wants to take Hector out too, by the way. He basically wants to take down everybody that screwed Dracula over. He wants to avenge Dracula in a certain way, which is very, very interesting. And you see that he's still he's still a forge master. He's still creating night creatures of his own. And you get to see his journey. Not not a ton of his journey, but enough. Of, and, and again, his is a story that definitely pays off in the final couple of episodes. And the other side to this is you've got Carmilla's story of how she basically wants to build up this dominant force to sort of take over the world. And you see that she's working with her sisters to try and do this and her sisters kind of think she's crazy and that she's, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, overambitious, right? Saying that maybe she's taking on a bit too much in all of this. But then we've got Hector, who is a forge master, who could be a huge part of this plan. And then you meet Carmilla's sister, Lenore, who seems like she's the innocent one, right? You know, albeit she's a vampire, right? So she seems like the innocent one, the sweet one, the one that's, you know... She even calls herself the peacemaker at one point, right? And then she's basically charged with manipulating Hector to be able to do their bidding, doing what they want him to do, and that is to create these night creatures to be a part of their army. And how are they going to do that if they're going to be loyal to Hector? Well, not only does Lenore seduce the hell out of poor Hector, she manipulates him to a insane degree and I will say this one Hector tries to get the drop on her right because he underestimates her and thinks that she's weak and she kicks his ass in the beginning I mean seriously kicks his ass to the point where you go okay we definitely need to take Lenore more seriously but she still has that sweetness to her right and she ends up getting to the point where he pledges himself to her, basically, and doesn't realize that in doing so is going to, big spoiler here, end up becoming her slave and her sister's slaves. And it was all basically all a ploy to get him to do exactly what they wanted him to do and bind him as a slave. It was a pretty brilliant plan. And you get to see that maybe Lenore, you thought Carmilla was the, the most evil of all the sisters? Lenore might be the most evil of all because she's sneaky. And sneaky can sometimes be... Way more evil than obvious evil. You've, you've also got Carmilla's other sisters who are in a relationship together. And, and, you know, one of them is very much the military leader of the group, the strategist. And the other one is basically the, she seems like the figurehead, like she's the leader. She's the calming voice of reason when, you know, things need to be focused. She's the one that will focus their efforts. And again, this is another one of those things where. We don't really get to see this through either. We don't get to see the complete end of this story, which is very, very interesting. We get we do get to see something involving Isaac and the magician who's basically, 
hypnotize all of these different humans to build a stronghold for the sisters. And I will say, I'm going to skip to this here for just a second. Because this was probably the goriest and most graphic season of Castlevania so far. And that's saying something. There's a lot of terrifying night creatures in this. There's a lot of gore in parts. There's a lot of just downright creepy stuff that happens. But there's one particular scene that I want to talk about. And this is a spoiler. And it involves Isaac when he's basically trying to get to where this magician is and where he thinks Carmilla and her and her sisters, by extension, are going to be to, to do exactly what he wants to do, and that's avenge Dracula. He finds this magician that tries to bind, he tries to control Isaac, and Isaac, you know, he puts that dagger up there, and he rips that mind-controlling crown off his head, kills the magician. Now, what we saw was these this ball of just human beings throwing themselves at Isaac like, like cannonballs. And when Isaac kills the magician, this giant ball of people just becomes people again. And you just see bodies slowly start to fall from the sky. I mean, like what looked like thousands of bodies, right? And it was a bone-chilling scene in this this series. One of the most bone-chilling in the entire history of this series. And I thought that that made a huge difference. Huge statement right there. It it was an unbelievable scene. And then you also get the rug ripped out from under you as well because Saifa and and Trevor, as they're in Lindenfeld, sort of, you know, Trevor sort of, I don't want to say befriends Judge, but certainly trusts him enough to want to help him because Judge is like the de facto almost mayor of this town and he seems like a really good dude. And it turns out he was freaking murdering people and collecting their shoes in his back room, and he was basically a serial murderer, for lack of a better term. And I'm not talking about, and we're not just talking about adults, we're talking about kids as well. It was bad news. So Trevor and Cypher's just faith in humanity or faith in the living at all was just shattered. And that's what we get to see from a lot of our characters at the end of the season. They're just shattered individuals. Alucard, especially because. I thought that was that was one of the mo the the interesting things about the season was Alucard's story was just the power of loneliness in general the intense loneliness that Alucard was feeling and he allows Taka and Sumi into his home and it turns out they just basically wanted his castle and wanted his knowledge and they thought that he was holding back on them and that he was going to teach them. He was going to teach them how to take care of their problem and sort of ended up befriending them. And it turned out to be a little bit more than friends in the final two episodes. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, but he allowed himself because he was so lonely to drop his guard and trust someone. And what when we, and we saw when he got betrayed, what he is capable of and something that he did not want to do. And the heartbreak that we see from Alucard and having to do what he did to Taka and Zumi. And you wonder now, when we see Alucard at the end, is Alucard going to adopt more of his father's principles now? Because think of it, Saifa and Trevor basically left him. It's not as cut and dry as all that, but that's kind of what happened. We also get to see these two humans that he intensely trusted right away and loved and befriended in such a short amount of time, betray him in in, in in a terrible, terrible way to the point where he ends up having to kill them. And and you wonder, and you, you see what he does with them at the end at the end of the series, the, the final part of episode 10. It's pretty intense, and he makes a comment about his dad, and it's not good. It's not good. So I just wonder where Alucard's head's going to be at going forward. But before I wrap this up, I want to get to St. Germain for a second because he was one of the most likable characters of this season and a great new character. He's very eccentric, very easily liked. You didn't you couldn't quite get a handle on where he his loyalties were. Was he a loyal character that could be trusted? Was he somebody that was just out for himself? Was he somebody that was working an angle? And it seemed like all of those things until you get to the point where the gate of hell was open, and of course they're trying to resurrect Dracula in the Priory, and he basically sacrifices himself to close the door 
to hell. And we see him have that little trippy dream, and you're thinking, you know that they're trying to build the universe out of Castlevania, and there's going to be crossovers, possibly with the Cyberpunk series. So you get to see a lot of trippy stuff that goes on, and you wonder if this is going to be part of the future of what's going to be a crossover. We'll have to wait and see, because we don't really get a whole lot of confirmation on that. You get a few what looks like Easter eggs, but it's nothing that can really be confirmed. And we also get to see the biggest spoiler of all, is we get to see not just Dracula, but his wife in hell, right? And you're wondering, is this a chance for them to escape and be back for a season four, which has not been confirmed yet as of me recording this. So this is a show that does bet heavy on continuing its story. and But to see how broken our main characters are at the end of this, even though, I mean, they win the day. They you, you, The gates to hell are closed. You get to see the, the, the night creatures, for the most part, are vanquished. And, you know, they, they get a huge victory, just like they did at the end of Season 2. But the, the feeling and the vibe is very, very different at the end of Season 3. It feels like a loss when it's really a win. So, the just the unbelievable way that... This show made you think in the first several episodes and to to the point where you're wondering, you know, is this all that there's going to be? Is it going to be this simple? And then it turns out to be this this just nonstop thrill ride of an ending that I couldn't possibly. Yeah, I can't possibly put it into words other than you just seeing it for yourself. It's incredible what these last episodes nine and ten were able to do in a season that had a lot of, quite frankly, normal moments in it. But we also got more personal with a lot of our characters, and not just Sypha and Trevor and Alucard, but also Isaac and Hector, and meeting the sisters of Carmilla, and seeing that Carmilla might not be the most evil one out of all of them. There's a lot of to be continued in this season, and I really hope that, that, that this is a, st- a story that they get a chance to continue to tell in future seasons because if not it's going to end up being a huge waste because what they set up with these final two episodes is pretty intense and pretty awesome and props to the to folks at powerhouse animation studios on a another beautiful job well done that's the one constant thing you can always count on with these castlevania series is that if you've got powerhouse animation studios behind you you're going to get a gorgeous finished product the voice cast again amazing Warren Elliston did a fantastic job scripting this thing and letting that those big moments come in the final couple of episodes and having all that set up just pay off in an amazing way. Just goes to show you sometimes it pays to be patient and wait and your patience will be rewarded. So if this happens again next season on Castlevania, I'm just going to trust that everything's going to work out because it did in a big way for season three. This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by ID Tech. And as a parent and a working parent, my wife works as well. You know, we've got a toddler and we got to that point of what are we going to do with him during the summer when he's not in school? And you don't want him to lose that educational value either. That's something that was really, really important to us. So one perfect solution might be for you and your kids is ID Tech. They have the number one STEM program for kids age 7 to 19 and basically the instructors really kind of transform your kids love of apps and video games into stuff that is going to be a foundation for you know what's going to be college internships and dream careers at companies they want to work for so if your kid loves instagram on instagram all day or playing minecraft this is something that is going to be catered to them i mean they're going to have a blast just building the stem skills that employers are looking for even at such a young age and id tech was actually founded in silicon valley that should tell you something if you're wondering okay james is this going to be anywhere near where i'm at their programs are actually held at 150 prestigious campuses and destinations around the world i mean you're talking caltech nyu cambridge there is going to be a location within driving distance for you. So if you want to make summer count for your child with a session at ID Tech, you're going to want to visit idtech.com slash dnpod to reserve your child spot. You can get $75 off. That's idtech.com slash dnpod 
for $75 off. Now, they've got weekday long and overnight options available, courses of all different skill levels, and they've even got all-girls campuses, pre-college teen-only academies, and so many options that you are going to want to check out. So make an investment in your child's future and let them have the fun that they deserve this summer as well with ID Tech Camps by going to idtech.com slash dnpod for $75 off of your child's session today. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Castlevania Season 3 from Netflix. Up next, time to talk the Batman and a ton of other interesting nerd news. I'm James Witham. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is voice actor Roger Craig Smith, and you guys are listening, you lucky people, to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And we're back. When you fight crime, sometimes things have to be a little fast and furious. It's time for nerd news. We start out with another big reveal from the Batman director, Matt Reeves, on social media, which he's been amazing with up to this point. We now get a chance to get to see the Batmobile from the Batman. And here's the one thing that struck me right off the bat, pun absolutely intended. It's a car. It's an actual car i can't remember the last time on screen maybe it hasn't been since adam west that the batmobile was an actual car not a tank a tumbler this weird elongated looking thing it's a car it's an actual car and yeah it looks like a muscle car and it really is going to make sense i think for the vibe that this movie is going for this is a noir story apparently it's going to be you know year two of Bruce Wayne as Batman. So you'd think he wouldn't have like an advanced Batmobile at this point, right? It looks like something that was was put together and is, you know, starting to evolve into something more. Now, who built it? I don't know. I don't know that, you know, Bruce is in the garage with a wrench saying, hey, I need armor here, here, and here, and I need this to do this. And we have no idea what's on the inside of it, by the way. It's only the exterior but as far as exteriors go, it just looks like it looks like a 70s muscle car, for the lack of a better better term. I've seen it described that way on, on social media a bit as well. That's kind of what it looks like. And, and you know, that's it seems appropriate for what the vibe has been so far of what we know about the Batman. I mean, we won't know until June of 2021 when this movie is going to be coming out and we haven't seen any trailers or anything yet other than the test footage that we got of the bat suit. We do get a good look at the full or a full reveal of the bat suit from a distance anyway and it looks pretty darn good from head to toe. We kind of got that idea from the test footage but a little bit more from this photo but I like the idea that finally the Batmobile which is maybe the most one of the most iconic vehicles in movies and comics together period i mean if you want to talk about most iconic vehicles in movies there there are a ton you know there's the delorean there's you know herbie the love bug quite frankly for lack for lack of some better examples you've got you know bandit smoking the bandit i mean you've got a lot of different vehicles that you could point to you've got christine i mean i don't want to list like a thousand different movie vehicles here but there's still there's several that you could choose from But the Batmobile is right up there, near or at the top, depending on who you talk to. And this one is, it's a car. And that is, it's so brilliant. It tells me that Matt Reeves is all in on his noir story, on this early Batman story. He gets it. And he's not going to apologize for the style that he's going for. And quite frankly, it's kind of a breath of fresh air. Because the Batmobile has been portrayed as this otherworldly tank-like vehicle. Right. And now it's a car and it just feels for some reason just so refreshing that that's exactly what this Batmobile is, is it's a car. It almost make it almost takes you back to when you were reading early Batman or Batman year one or some early comics or, you know, I can't remember it being a car since like the 80s. Right. Where the Batmobile seemed a little bit more like a car. I know some are comparing it to, to a 70s style Batmobile from the comics as well from I believe 72 or or something but it just we never see the Batmobile as a car and that's exactly what we're getting here and I think that that is super super cool I can't wait to see more reveals from Matt Reeves he's like my favorite follow on Twitter now just because I never know what's going to pop up 
on his feed. And it's always something awesome. So congrats to him on that for basically winning social media all the time, which is not easy to do. Video game ad- adaptations, not usually easy to do either. But this one is one that has sort of evolved over time. And we're talking about The Last of Us. And, you know, it seems like all the word about The Last of Us was, it was we were going to get a movie, right? We're going to get a Last of Us movie. And that's just what they were going to do. But now things have taken a completely different turn. According to The Hollywood Reporter, HBO will be the home of a Last of Us TV series. So they are going to now, instead of doing a movie, do a TV series, and we know that it will be based on the first game. Here's something else that's really, really interesting. Chernobyl creator Craig Mazin, who did the Chernobyl series for HBO that was wildly popular, is going to be adapting this to series, but they also have the game's creative director, Neil Druckmann, from Naughty Dog. We also have Naughty Dog president Evan Wells, who is going to be one of the producers on this. This is also going to be the first TV series from PlayStation Productions. So when you're looking at video game adaptations, you usually don't have the game's creative director as part of as a major part of the team. It's usually like a tag-along credit, right? Like you say somebody's an executive producer and they're not really that involved with the production. Well, it looks like Druckmann's actually going to be a big part of this production along with Craig Mason. As a matter of fact, Mason tagged him on social media and said, hey, let's go make a TV series or something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. But it seems like this is is more of a partnership than we would normally get for something like this. And call me crazy, but I think The Last of Us will actually work better as a TV series than as a movie because now maybe we get to dig a little deeper into some of these characters and some things that the game really didn't have time to get into or that, you know, a TV series is basically just a long cutscene, right? For lack of a better term, you're not going to get gameplay in a TV series. That's what, you know, kind of separates the two is that in video games, while they become more cinematic, that you still have to have that gameplay element and you can't really play it off like a movie or a TV series, even though some of them are pretty darn close. This one... Which And you can't help but change certain things about the story, right, because of that fact. So this, to me, seems like it'll be more of a deep dive and filling in gaps or extending certain things from the game that we didn't get to see before. Are we going to see beats from the game in this series? I think that we will, but that's true of anything, right? Even in comic book adaptations, you're going to get beats of certain stories, right? You You don't often see something that's either completely shot for shot or completely original. You see more completely original than shot for shot, but I don't think that's what we're going to get here. I think to a certain extent we will because the difference between video games and comic books is is that you've got more of a chance of a casual fan picking up a comic than you do playing a video game, quite frankly. And I know that's going to drive gamers nuts and you're going to scream at me for that because The Last of Us sold, what, like 17 million copies and you're going to say, well, what comic has sold 17 million copies? And that's a fair point. I suppose. But at the same time, you know, it's a lot easier to pick up a comic or a graphic novel and read that in a day than to play through The Last of Us in a day. And quite frankly, some people just don't have the skill to make it through a video game. Now, it's, honestly, it's true. There's not. There's just some people that aren't going to take the time and don't have the what it takes to actually get through games. Gaming, there's skill involved there. The only skill involved in, in a graphic novel is reading it. If you're as, as far as the consumer standpoint, if you're consuming media, all you have to do is read a graphic novel and look at the amazing comic art. You don't have to have any otherworldly skills other than, you know, an understanding of what is and what isn't good literature. I mean, that's an important part of it, too. But video games require a certain amount of still skill to get through. Right. You don't need an advanced level hand-eye coordination skill to get through a, a comic run or graphic novel. So it's easier to consume a comic or a graphic novel than it is a video game. So you're going to be introducing The Last of Us to a much larger audience than you would maybe a character like a Batman or a Superman or, or a Marvel character like Iron Man or Thor or Captain America. These are characters that are known through one way, shape, or form, even through animation, too. You've got more of an opportunity to expose people to certain characters 
right? You don't get that opportunity with video games. So even if certain things are shot for shot, while that might not be great for people that have played The Last of Us games, you have to understand how much of a minority you are in this situation. Whereas you're trying to get this out to an entirely larger audience. And it's and, and, and this is another instance where I don't think it works backwards either. Like if somebody really enjoys The Last of Us TV series, are they going to go back and play the game? Probably not, right? Likely not. But if you're somebody who really enjoyed, like say, the Batman, if you see that and you really enjoy it, are you going to maybe dive into some Batman comics or something? There's a possibility that you might, or read a Batman graphic novel. That's a it's a possibility. So before you complain about this possibly being shot for shot of the first game, know that there is a larger audience at play here that you need to cater to. And you know this this might end up being a mini series, like we saw. You know the Watchmen basically turned into a mini series on HBO. I don't know if that'll end up being continued or not. That's still up in the air. But it ended up running for one season, and then everybody's sort of walked away from it, right? That's basically what ended up happening, for lack of a better way of putting it. So to, to say that this is going to be a long-running series, we don't know, but there's a possibility there. And what you might end up getting is more story than you bargained for. And maybe we don't know the you know exactly where things are going to be at from the first game to the second game for The Last of Us 2 because that's not coming out until May. So we don't know where that story's going to go, but we don't know how much how many gaps are going to need to be filled in there either. And that's something maybe this TV, TV series would get the opportunity to do. Well, it looks like the producers of The Magicians are going to get the opportunity to tell the end of their story because it is coming to an end. According to TV Insider News that broke earlier this week, that is that The Magicians will end with this fifth season that is that is airing on sci-fi right now. Now, I know there's some skepticism because the final episode is supposed to air on April 1st, literally on April Fool's Day. I think I can understand why you might wonder whether or not this is actually going to happen, but it looks like it is because showrunners John McNamara and Sarah Gamble talked to TV Insider in in, in an interview that they did, and basically they said that they did try to find a, a home for the show on other platforms and that it just didn't work out. They either couldn't find the right creative fit or they're just, you know, the, the interest wasn't necessarily there. And this, I'm not putting words in their mouth. It's just the gist of what seemed like they were saying, but they also said that this season's finale was written as a series finale, as most of them were, because they, the only time they knew they were going to be back was season four. Season five was the only season they knew they'd be back for. So they didn't know exactly how far this show was going to go until recently so yes they are going to get to tell the end of their story i will say though as somebody who really loved the magicians i think that the earlier seasons have definitely been the strongest i'm not saying that these newer seasons have been bad per se but i don't think that they've been up to the quality of the first three seasons and and especially the last the last couple seasons well season season four definitely picked up towards the end and season five Certainly had an interesting start, but I it, it was just hard to capture the magic of, for me, it, again, pun intended, of those first three seasons. So it just feels, this is one of those times where I am sad because I love the show and I love these characters. And that's nothing, that's something that's never strayed for me, is the love of these characters. While I think that the show as a whole hasn't gone the direction that I would hoped it would story-wise, at the same time, the characters have always been what brought me back to the magicians, even if I wasn't 100% sold on what the, what was going on in the story and where things were going, the characters, all the actors and the characters both, always made this show for me. And, and that's why, even when the, there were times in the show where I was going, really, this is what we're doing in the story? I, I always watched and enjoyed it because of these characters, just because of... And that is also a testament to how they were written, too, by the way, but the way these amazing actors and this amazing cast brought these characters to life that was my favorite part of the magicians in what was a strong story early on and i'm really hoping that things end well now however you want it to end i you know i have my opinion on how i want it to end i'm sure you have your opinion on how you want it to end and i guess that's going to be dependent on how much of a quentin coldwater fan that you really are i know that some fans are and some fans aren't and that's that's fine i get it but this is a show that 
Five seasons is a good run. I think we need to understand that in this day and age that five seasons is a pretty darn good run, and that is nothing to shake your head at. But it just feels like this is a good time to say goodbye to this show and let this stand as a good five seasons of TV. And and I'm not even saying the last couple seasons were bad. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that they built up such a strong standard in the first three seasons that it felt like season four wasn't quite at that level and season five hasn't quite reached that level as well. Although, again, end of season four, I think, really, really made really really got back on track and I think season five will do the same as well but it just feels like a good time to say goodbye as hard as, hard as that is for me to say and as much as I do love these characters and I will miss them it's, it just seems like it's time to move on and have a fresh start speaking of fresh starts really quickly Stargirl finally has a premiere date a dual premiere date as a matter of fact we'll see May the 11th on DC Universe, you'll see it first on the streaming service. That means it'll be commercial free on DC Universe. There's going to be extended versions of some episodes and also some behind the scenes footage. So there's a reason to watch it on DC Universe. Then it will air again the next day on Tuesday, May the 12th on the CW. Now, to me, that would also signal a possibility of when The Flash and DC's Legends of Tomorrow are going to have their finales. So just keep your eyes on that if you're thinking that far ahead. So just want to get to that really quickly. And one more thing that I wanted to talk about, because I don't, I didn't want to talk about this, but I also feel like I can't really ignore it either. And that is the, all of this stuff that's evolving with the coronavirus. This is not a health show. I'm not going to get into specifics of the virus or anything like that. I just don't want to do that. And, And, you know, there's plenty of opinions about things on social media already. I don't want to get into that either. But, you know, with everything that's going on with Emerald City Comic Con, the James Bond being moved now to November from its April date, that seems like a smart call because this is that is a global movie. And anything else that might get delayed or moved or something like that, just, just know that the reason I'm not talking about this on the show, unless it's something that absolutely positively 100% is canceled and I, and I need to talk about it because it's huge news, and as of me recording this, that is not the case, other than the limbo that you know, Emerald City is in right now. The reason I'm not going to talk about this a lot on the podcast is because it's such a fluid situation and things can change so quickly that things can become old news very, very fast. And what is an evolving situation with the coronavirus? I don't want to report something one day that ends up being completely different the next day. I'm not going to throw out facts and figures either because those are things that are going to change on a daily basis. So just know that go to downandnerdypodcast.com. I'll try and keep things updated as much as I can on there. And this is a very different situation too than I think that we faced for a lot of different things and the possibility of event cancellations and entertainment things being moved or not moved and whether or not that's controversial. It's a very fluid situation and it's hard when you record a podcast to be able to evolve with a fluid situation like this and have something not be completely old news or out of date factually. So know that it's not being ignored it will definitely be on social media and on downandnerdypodcast.com. Follow all the latest information there. Like if Emerald City did end up being canceled, that's where that information is going to be. So as you're listening to the show and wondering why I haven't been talking about it, that's going to be why you're not really going to hear a whole lot about it on this show. Unless something's definite and absolutely needs to be talked about coronavirus related, then that is when I'll talk about it. It's going to do for Nerd News. Up next, speaking about talking about things and to talk about the future and join the future number one with writer Zach Kaplan. We'll chat with him next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Addy Shankar, and I'm on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's a guy that you will definitely know from a couple of awesome books, Eclipse being one, Port of Earth being another. I mean, Lost City Explorers, I don't think I need to go on, but we're about to add to that list with Aftershocks. Join the future that will be out on March the 4th, it is writer Zach Kaplan. Zach, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks so much, man. So even though this book is called Join the Future, Zach, it also feels like you really weave the past in there really well also. So what made you decide to essentially kind of blend two eras together in really one time period? Western and science fiction. Yeah, it, well, it, it, the, it was kind of built into the, the concept of the book, which looks at the, the premise that in the future... Uh, cities will continue to become more densely populated, technologically advanced, and attractive. 
and uh, that uh, unfortunately, small town rural America will empty out more and more. Um, and just looking at that dynamic, it felt like a Western. It reminds me, James, of like the old, uh, I mean, there are a lot of Westerns like this where the, the railroad is coming through or the cattle ranchers are coming through and there's uh, Clint Eastwood's like in the way and they say, you got to move, civilization is coming. And he says, not on my, my watch. And so it just kind of lent itself to that. And I, I think, you know, when I thought about that, that marrying of genres, sci-fi and Western, it felt like everything that had been done in that vein was like uh, Will Smith, Wild Wild West, right? Like, yeah. uh, I can't think of a lot of uh, content that feels like gritty and grounded, but sci-fi, futuristic, but Western. In fact, one thing that became a bit of a, just a, an abstract touchstone was The Mandalorian, only yeah. because you know, it, it was like when I when that hit and the join the future was already deep into production. I was like, oh, right. You know, here we go. Uh, even though this is Star Wars, this is a Western and this is kind of a uh, uh, kind of grounded and cool in a way. So, um, yeah, it was all built into the concept. But uh, I had I had, I really loved uh, marrying these two genres, um, it, you know, sci fi and Western. Zach, you and I both know that many stories have been told about the future in many different ways. So what were some of the tropes you were really trying to avoid when you were putting this together? I was trying to avoid um, the obvious dystopian nature of seeing a future city and, you know, there, there's some sort of built-in. I mean, another thing I did is I, I, I bled out. There's not really AI or, you know, robots. I really wanted to strip it down to... 50 years in our future and and the this this beautiful almost utopic um kind of setting of these cities is is alluring but you can you just sense that something is wrong with it but it's not the, the thing that's wrong with it is that it's a lifestyle in these cities that kind of for, leans very heavily on technology and you have no privacy and a lot of the things that we feel today and and that was enough to kind of paint this one existence and then see the way that our, our main heroine and her family and, and these small towns are living and they're, they're still trying to hold on to their small town ideals and their, their, their kind of traditions and their sense of community. And, and that was enough. So I didn't really want to go all hunger games with the kind of um, really hardcore dystopian kind of uh, uh, over uh, like uh, overpowering. I wanted it to be subtle. Now, Clementine Libby might be one of the most perfect Western names that I've ever heard in my entire life. So how would you best describe her, her, to, her to potential readers? She is, uh, I have been using a bit of a, a, a Katniss Everdeen, only in the sense that it is a coming-of-age story about a young teenage girl who's trying to find her, her way, and she doesn't really feel connected to any uh, one way of life. Uh, she's grown up in these small towns. She's been taught to not use technology or the internet or, uh, or computers or machines as is the way of life here. And she's accepted it, but she's kind of always wondered what else is out there. And she's never really done anything futuristic or been to any of these mega cities. And so she's kind of torn and she's about to go into uh, you know, adulthood you know, kind of just accepting this mantle of uh, of traditional point of view that she's been handed down by her by her family. But, um, you know, she doesn't it, it's not hers yet. And so she's she's a very complex character. On the one hand, she's got a little bit of a rebellious streak, as as most adolescents do. And on the other hand, she's got a lot of ideals and a lot of optimism. And, uh, you know, she ends up really um, being put to the test and put through the ringer. Um, there are these agents that come out to these small towns and try to to buy everybody up and get them to join the future and come to these mega cities. And uh, her particular town is is really uh, they apply a tremendous amount of pressure and it puts her in some very um, very uh, tragic situations. And so, um, um, but yeah, she's she's strong, uh, enduring, full of grit, and and a lot of fun to write. Now, playing off of that just a little bit, her dad, William, who's almost kind of like your Clint Eastwood character like you were describing earlier, he's very interesting, very passionate about his beliefs. And after reading this first issue, without spoiling anything, is that passion going to be as big a part of this story 
in the results and future issues as I think it is? Yes, absolutely. I mean, her father um, has very much, he's the mayor of this town. He's very much set forth the entire way that this town does things. He is resolute and committed to staying away from these mega cities, not having any of his people join, um, going against uh, technology. And, you know, he wants what's best for everybody, but he he really draws the line in the sand, and he believes that compromising even a little bit will uh, will be the end of you. And um, this is challenging because when you're going up against antagonists that are armed with everything you could imagine from futuristic technology, it is very hard to uh, to take on that level of antagonism and that level of seduction without without breaking or bending and so um yeah his his point of view very much becomes um, a constant challenge for clementine as she as she goes through the story talking to writer zach kaplan of join the future the first issue is going to be available march the 4th from aftershock comics at your local comic book shops and of course digitally as well zach i want to push that a little bit forward because you're you're also talking about you know overpopulation and things a few minutes ago and it makes me think when I was reading this issue it was actually kind of made me think of the Oklahoma land rush and how that was a huge moment in history but anyone who knows history knows how brutal it was and after reading this issue it almost seems like there's a population rush at playing this story so am I on to something here and if so what well, you know when do we and if so will we find out why at some point yeah absolutely I mean this was something I I I read a lot as someone who's interested in science fiction and futurism, and I, and I found this trend talked about again and again over the past 20 years, that, that people are moving away from small towns in rural America, um, even beyond the, what is happening with globalization and all of this. And you always see a few articles about millennials coming to you know mountain towns and rediscovering things, but in the grand scheme of things, there is a trend from the small town to the big city. And this is not going to stop. And as vertical farming and technology makes it easier and easier to live in cities and get everything you, you could possibly need, uh, I just saw this inevitable uh, po population. The other thing I drew from was what you're starting to see like with China. For so long, China had um, restricted its population. And now we realize that population is power in, in globalization. The more people you have, the better. And so, um, you know, if you have mega cities, mega cities who can have more people and create economic trade deals because they have more buyers, they have more economic power, they have more people who can produce, it, it just becomes a population gold rush, like you say, among mega cities. And the currency of people who live out in these small towns, they'll give them anything to come into the big city. And this is the world of Join the Future, uh, the very title itself, to say, come out of whatever small town you are living in that small town values and ideals and simple life of self-sufficiency come into uh, a mega city where we'll give you everything you need and take care of you all we ask is that you you come and join so it is absolutely a, a population rush and and I, I think like you say the gold rush or the oklahoma rush or some of these western frontier kind of um periods in history uh, it is meant to evoke that um, because we're dealing in a Western and we're bad, but here the currency is people. Now, you're like we were talking about, you were dealing with two different settings here, essentially, in this book. But the, and there aren't many artists that could really pull that off as well as Mr. Kowalski has pulled it off, I think. So what was your reaction when you got a look at that initial art for the first issue? Unbelievable. I, you know, I'm very proud of the story, but let me tell you guys something. If you're listening, the artwork is insane. Uh, Peter Kowalski and really Brad Simpson colorist as a team have been doing a lot of great stuff. Uh, Bloodborne was what especially caught my eye. Mm -hmm. um, but they have taken it to another level in this book. And, you know, we described, uh, you know, this really beautiful, picturesque, future, utopia kind of city. And man, it's just, it, it is so gorgeous. The first few pages and the way that the lines capture such detail. And and there's this kind of like soft creepiness to it. And it seems so ideal and so perfect. It, it, the, it's just beautiful line work. And then you get to the country and the way they capture the the kind of richness and the depth of, of, of 
this small town and these people in it. It was really something else to see them develop both styles. And the artwork just gets better and better. I'm starting to see colors for issue two and, and artwork for issue three. And it is it is going to be one of the best drawn books of the year color uh, for, for creator-owned books. It's unbelievable what they're doing. I mean, uh, I, I take absolutely no credit in the, the level of, of craft that they're bringing to the art. It's unbelievable. And, and we also have... Hassan Otsman Elhau, who is uh, an award-winning uh, journalist himself, but also a, a really phenomenal letter, and he brings some some very uh, dynamic and uh, and artistic letters to the whole series. So uh, it's an amazing creative team. Zach, we were talking about this a little bit off the air, but after just a few years uh, of doing this, you've already built up an impressive catalog of stories from multiple <coughs> publishers, actually. So when you get a chance to talk to fans, whether it be out at signings or cons or anything like that, which book do you get asked about the most? I, oh, man. I, I genuinely get asked about all of them, in all honesty. Um, I, I, I bring a lot of trades to, to books. If anyone's come to a convention and met me, I'm on my feet the whole time. Uh, I rarely leave the table, and I'm talking and, and selling books nonstop. And I have been to a lot of conventions, and I sell the same amount of Eclipse, Port of Earth, and Lost City Explorers at all of them. Uh, it really, it really, there is not one that is a, a better bestseller or one that has more fans. Um, they each scratch a slightly different itch, Eclipse being a little more post-apocalyptic and action, Port of Earth being a little more alien and thought-provoking lost explorers has got a little more of a ya vibe and more kind of a fun adventure they all do something different but they all they all seem to uh to get a fair share of uh, of fans so i really couldn't say the only thing i can say is that they've all gone into development in television but port of earth has gone uh, is the furthest along in in that uh vein i think that people ask me the most about uh port of earth because um it is very, it is very close in its uh, progress for for TV. So um, that that has the edge to it. But they all, they all, they all seem to do well with fans. That's definitely great to hear. Now you guys do a great job of laying out that futuristic society that you were talking about right in the beginning of the story. And I will agree that the the first few pages of art are just absolutely incredible. So what's something that you hope will end up being true in the actual world five, ten, fifteen years from now? I will bring it to, to a core theme. I, I worry so much about our future because the the the, the ground seems to be uh, shifting right from under our, our feet. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of things that really worry me. But in relationship to this book, I would say privacy and data privacy. You know, we bring a lot of technology into our lives, computers that have web cameras and data and there they you know we allow all of these different apps and softwares to to watch our every viewing and our every purchasing and everything that we're doing and all of that data is being collected and and used and we're aware of that and we just kind of uh, go along with it and i i i worry about not only what that data will will do to us will, will what they will do with it but what it will do to us you know, I have two young children and they're going to be growing up swiping devices left and right. And they're going to be they're going to uh, be used to the loss of privacy. They're going to be used to the idea that the machines know what they want. They're going to be used to this idea that they don't need to um, that, that they can be they can be dependent on the technology. And that scares me. Um, I think it's really important to have choice and still be self-sufficient well as you check the privacy settings on your phone you might as well pre-order <laughs> join the future number one going to be available march the 4th at your local comic book shops and digitally everywhere from aftershocks aftershock comics and you know we're going to keep you up to date on all the tv adaptations that he's got going on as well zach kaplan buddy thank you so much for joining me this week always a pleasure james thank you very much it is really interesting to me how join the future really has a dual vibe to it throughout the story and how what seems like two timelines kind of come together and weave in so perfectly. You've got the Western on one side, you've got the absolute future on the other side mixed in with this propaganda feel. And, and Zach's right, there is definitely a Hunger Games feel to it as well in a certain extent. And just Clementine Libby, the, that character, I think we are going to find out so much more about her in future issues, I think that this is a character you're really going to want to root for 
and and I just can't wait to see more of this story. If you haven't jumped in yet, join the future. Number one is available right now at your local comic book shops and online retailers. This is one you're going to want to put in your poll box because I think it's only going to get better from here on out. And that's kind of, you know, that happens with Zach Kaplan's stories. Like if you haven't read Eclipse yet, Port of Earth, you get those as well because if you don't know enough about Zach Kaplan, you should because a lot of his stuff's going to be coming to TV and movies too, by the way. So just be prepared for that. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Zach Kaplan for joining me this week. Make sure you're following us online as well, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find out more about Zach's work, previous interview that I had with Zach, also some of the comics that he has as well. Got some reviews up there. Also, make sure you go to idtech.com slash dnpod. That's how you'll find out more about ID Tech's camps for kids during the summer. If you're looking for something to do for your child this summer, they're going to have a blast. They're going to learn a ton, and they are going to be, speaking of joining the future, they are going to be ready for the future with ID Tech. And you're going to get $75 off with our special offer as well. Make sure you're also following us on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram and at Down and Nerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.